wonderful, majestic world around us, it's time for Dear Science. Thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Kia ora, Alan. Hey, Nicholas, how are we? I'm excellent. All the better now that you're here, Alan. <laughs> oh, well, it's a cracker day. It was a nice long weekend and um, yeah, yeah, all yeah, good. So, fresh and ready for Dear Science today. Oh, wow, well, you bet. Yes, yes. Just remembering on Labor Day that, oh, hell, I'm on the radio tomorrow. Better, <laughs> better get something sorted. So <clears throat> anyway, let's talk some science and let's talk taste. Yeah, let's, right. let's let's talk taste. Why? What's the point? What's the point of taste? You know, if something's bad. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It, well, again, that's that's the guess. That sort of evolution-wise, that um, we've evolved to be able to taste things that are not necessarily uh, good for us, mm. and also evolved to taste things that are required for us. So you know. Um, it was long thought that there were only sort of four basic tastes. So mm. you had your sweet and you had your sour, you had your salty and you had your bitter. Yeah. Mm. And so sweet, uh, obviously you need your carbohydrates and stuff like that. So, you know, you can taste them. Mm -hmm. uh, sour, um, so people, well, gen generally things that are bad for you uh, can be sour. And so, um, you know, that's why we need to be able to taste sour so that, mm. you know, we're not going to be ingesting toxic things. Uh, salty, obviously we need our salts, we need our electrolytes and everything like that, so therefore we can taste salty. And bitter, again, is sort of the same as sour, so again, um, toxic things tend to be bitter, and so we can taste that. And back in 1907, there was a Japanese scientist by the name of, excuse my pronunciation, uh, Kikuane Ikeda, and he proposed umami as umami. another another basic taste. And that's mm. a term that's thrown around now, right? Oh, yes, indeed. Go to a friend's yes. house, try this, it's umami. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this was sort of known, well, well, it was proposed way back in 1907, and um, it took sort of about 70 or 80 years for it to be um, approved or, or, or recognised, I guess, as one of the, the five now basic tastes. That's an incredible time span, 70 or 80 years Yep. Ago. Yep, <laughs> and um, he would have uh, long shuffled off this mortal coil by the time it got accepted, <laughs> unfortunately, which kind of sucks. But um, so, and, and umami, what's the point of umami? Well, again, that apparently sort of uh, is to do with protein. Mm. So, um, you know, you can taste that so you know that you need adequate amounts of protein. So um, that's the story about taste. To be brutally honest, nobody really, really, really knows how taste and smell work yet. Um, really? it's, it's a very, very interesting area of science, and um, the jury's still out on a lot of this sort of stuff. Anyway, um, there's a bunch of workers at the University of Southern California who have now said that there might well be a sixth basic taste. What? I know, Exciting. and they have, they have just published this in Nature Communications uh, last week. And the sixth basic taste is ammonium chloride. Mm. Mm. Huh. Now, have you ever tried <laughs> Dutch licorice? No. I've tried licorice, not Dutch okay. licorice. What's the... Dutch licorice or Dutch sweets, Northern European, they go and put pure ammonium chloride in their lollies. Oh, and it's... it's a thing called salmiac. If you've ever tasted it, you'll never forget it, believe you me. Um, <laughs> it really is an acquired taste. Um, Dutch licorice particularly, um, again, it's got a real mm, sort of taste to it. You either love it or you don't. I perfectly understood how it tasted. <laughs> that, that I was like, oh, yeah, no, I've, yeah, 100%. 
and 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 these lollies, I've, I've I've tried some. They you know, they've got a nice sort of hard outer shell, and you think, oh, you know, this looks good. So you suck on them, suck on them, and all of a sudden you sort of break through, and you get to this pure ammonium chloride in the middle, and whoa! What's wow. the taste like of ammonium chloride? It tastes like ammonia, basically. Oh. So you know what ammonia smells yeah. like, then. As soon as you get this in your mouth, the ammonia goes up the back of your nose, and oh boy, you can you can really really taste it. So, and for some reason, these Northern Europeans they love this stuff. And again, um, you know, if you're not Northern European, then you may well not love it. But um, they or these workers at USC they have uh, built on, I guess, um, work that has been done in the past, which said that yes that it was known that the tongue is sensitive to ammonium chloride um, mm. and so they then uh, decided to investigate this further and so what they were looking at was in fact the protein that's responsible for being able to taste sour mm. because um, their proposal was that that protein that <clears throat> allows us to taste sour also allows us to taste ammonium chloride mm. and so what they did, and this protein is called OTOP1, okay, and um, that OTOP1 is or has channels that allow the passage of hydrogen ions. Now, anybody who knows a little bit of chemistry will know that hydrogen ions are all to do with acids, okay, and acids taste sour. Yes. Okay. And that's why the German word for acid is Säure, which means sour. And okay. yeah. A little bit of everything in there. <clears> there we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, get, you, you, you <laughs> get a lot. Hell yeah. German 101. <laughs> and it just so happens that ammonium chloride um, can uh, not interfere with, but be involved with um, hydrogen ions. Okay. So it itself is uh, a weak acid. Mm. Okay. And so they would think, well, this makes sense then because um, we've got this acid channel on this OTOP1 protein, uh, it makes sense that maybe this protein is also involved in us being able to taste uh, ammonium chloride. So what they did, long story short, got the mice, did a little bit of genetic engineering so that they could create these mice with and without this particular protein, uh, stuck some ammonium chloride in their water. The ones who still had this protein, they didn't like the water. The ones who didn't, they just gobbled it up and they couldn't actually taste it. Yeah, incredible. yeah, yeah. So um, they that that was sort of the clincher, the fact that they obviously couldn't um, taste the ammonium chloride. So um, this is their proposal now that um, you know there's a there's a, a specific protein there for both um, acid or both for the sour taste and both for the and the ammonium chloride taste as well, and. That then begs the question, okay, so on an evolutionary standpoint, what's the point of being able to taste ammonium chloride? And the answer being that um, when proteins break down, like decomposing uh, bodies, meat, flesh, whatever, uh, you tend to get these amines, these these compounds that contain uh, nitrogen or, or, or related to ammonia anyway, and they smell like ammonia or certainly taste like ammonia. Incredible. And so that seems to be... Well, that's that's what they're proposing anyway. So um, that's why evolution has um, given us the ability to be able to taste this stuff because it's reminiscent of rotting food, and so therefore we shouldn't eat it. But tell that to the Northern Europeans <laughs> who love their salty licorice. And Bags uh, not telling that to the Northern Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> so wh whip down to your local con confectionery store and um, ask for some salmiac if you're interested uh, in trying this. And as I say, you will either love it or hate it. There's no middle ground on this. <laughs> so.
<clears throat> That's great. What do you have next for us, Alan? Well, um, information. Let's talk about information and let's talk about storing information uh, because that is uh, an absolute necessity in this world of computers in which we find ourselves. And, um, you know, I think back to the days of my first work computer that had a 20 megabyte hard drive. You know, that was. <laughs> what, what's your phone? Google's yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's 128 yeah, so, gigabytes. So the phone's 128 That's gigs. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, that was in the 90s. And um, we've made extraordinary advances in being able to um, store information, obviously. Mm. But um, the way that we currently store information is going to reach a limit eventually and we're looking for new ways to store information some people have said well you know you can store information on molecules what mm. so on individual molecules and what better molecule than dna okay so a bunch Freaky. of workers uh in vienna have been painting with dna now so this is <laughs> this is just ridiculous and you might think that they've got nothing better to do with their time, but um, this is this is just quite extraordinary. So, what they've managed to be able to do is to replic replicate essentially your computer monitor with 16.7 million different colours, um, and they can basically take a DNA photocopy of any coloured uh, picture, and they can print it on a little thing about a centimetre by a centimetre. What? Okay. Now, how the heck do they do that? Right. Yeah. So we get, <laughs> so we get the DNA. Now, DNA is obviously, um, uh, by its very nature, it holds information because it holds our genetic information, doesn't yes. it? Okay. So, and the way that it works is we've got this double helix. We've got these what we call complementary strands that basically match up from head to tail and form this helix. Okay. Yes. Now, what we can do through the wonders of chemistry and biochemistry is that we can um, make edits in uh, the, the DNA so that it doesn't match up just perfectly, okay? Mm. And and that makes your double helix less stable, okay? If you've got perfect complementarity that's very, very stable, if you play around with it and make it so that that doesn't exactly match up all of the bases, all your A's to T's and C's to G's and all that sort of stuff, uh, then it's going to be less stable. The other thing you can do to DNA, and again, this is the wonders of chemistry, and this won a Nobel Prize for some people a few years back, is that you can put little fluorescent molecules on DNA so that they glow. Okay? Incredible. And what we can do is to get them to glow red and green and blue. Primary colours. Which just happen to be, right, the three colours that are on oh. your computer monitor, essentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the combinations of which um, you can make... 16.7 million different colors, okay? Incredible. Because you can get 256 different shades of green, 256 different shades of um, blue, 256 different shades of red, 256 by 256 by 16.7 million. And so they realized this, and basically what they needed to do was to make specific sequences of DNA. Yes. Okay? Which then had different stabilities, and you put these fluorescent tags on them, the less stable they are, the less they glow, okay? So the less Incredible. intense the glow is, okay? So the more stable, the more the glow, the less stable, the less intense. And from those differences in intensity of those three different colours, that's what then gives you the 256 different shades of each of them, which then gives you the 16.7 million or 24-bit colour, if you will, okay? 
But in order to do this, this required them to make 45,000 new um, DNA sequences, which ordinarily would sound like a ridiculous amount of work, but they can just basically press a button these days and do all this sort of stuff and just program it in and, you know, away it'll go. It'll, it'll, it'll make all of these things for you. And then being able to make these particular sequences, these, um, these duplexes as we call them, what they can then do is that they can take this one centimetre by one centimetre screen, as it were, and they can put, and this blows my mind, each particular duplex in a particular point on that little screen <laughs> to make a picture. Okay? And so basically, as I said, what they can do is they can take any picture and they then can uh, work it so that they can get a DNA photocopy of it. Basically, the picture printed in fluorescent DNA. And, um, that is insanity. It's just nuts. It really is. And um, so this was published in a very, very good chemistry journal just last week. And <clears throat> again, you might think, well, why? What's the point? Well, again, it's all to do with, with um, this whole idea of storing information and, um, and then retrieving information. And, you know, this very probably might well be the way of the future and that all of our sort of um, storage techniques might well be rendered uh, archaic by the advances that are going to be made on the, on the real, on the molecular scale where each individual molecule now holds information. And that means you can pack a hell of a lot of individual molecules into any space and... Um, you know, and that's just going to blow away the way that we do it at the moment, you know. So um, you, our, our silicon-based uh, methods of information Jeez. storage. So, you know, mind-blowing stuff. Absolutely brilliant. So, so is that just images that they're able to create at the moment? At the moment, yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. But you. again, you know, there's a lot of work going on in this field about just yeah. sort of information storage and stuff. But, you know, fan, fantastic stuff. Really, mm. really cool. And I know this last story that you have for us is a personal bit of a personal one that you wanted to, to talk about yeah here. yeah no this is, a, this is a really sad one unfortunately we're gonna we're gonna end on a bummer unfortunately but today is the 24th of october and on the 24th of october 1939 there was a big advance in uh women's fashion because that was when the first nylon stockings went on sale okay big advances yeah big massive um because you know um before that what did you have you had silk which was you know ridiculously expensive um all of these sorts of things so basically nylon was one of the first human-made fibers that mm. were made from sort of non-living uh materials basically um essentially um stuff derived from the oil industry really okay yeah. and um and they looked as good as silk and they were probably harder wearing than silk and you know all of these sorts of things and um you know this was this was massive for the company dupont who who made it you know this was this was mega bucks yeah mega 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 bucks the story behind it um is all about the guy who made nylon the first person to make nylon his name was wallace carruthers and he was a chemist and um he uh did the normal sort of chemistry things, undergraduate, postgraduate, got his PhD. Um, he was he was ridiculously talented, mm. enormously bright. And so this was about the mid-1920s, and he got a lecturing position at Harvard, which that's what everybody wants. You know, if you're mm. an academic, you want to go to Harvard, you want to be a lecturer at Harvard. And he got that, I think, while he was still in his 20s. Incredible. Which is just ridiculous. And... Um, 
then, even more ridiculous, after getting his dream job, um, DuPont, a big chemical company, then, then approached him and said, look, hey, camel work for us, we'll pay you double, blah de blah de blah and you can be in charge of your own research. And so he left Harvard and he went to DuPont and he worked on things called polymers. And you probably know the word polymer. So, um, Hydrocarbon chains? Yes, indeed. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Living oh, chemistry coming there we through. go. And um, in those days, polymers weren't really known. They were, they were just thought to be big molecules, but, but nobody really knew just quite how big they were. So the whole idea of making polymers and everything was, was sort of in its infancy. And he came along and he was the first person to make the first synthetic rubber. And then he made synthetic silk. And then he came up with nylon Incredible. as well. And um, it was. It was absolutely amazing. And I'm waiting you know, for the twist with my heart. Drops. <laughs> That's the bummer. Well, for those, for those um, discoveries, he was a certain for the Nobel Prize, a dead cert. He, he surely would have won the Nobel Prize. But sadly, um, he suffered really, really terribly from depression all his life. And in fact, he went around with a capsule of cyanide attached to his watch strap. Jeez. I mean, you know, that bad. So cyanide went with him wherever he was. And, um, you know, he made enormous, enormous advances in chemistry. Absolutely incredible. But sadly, um, depression got the better of him. And he ended up taking his own life early in 1937. And... This was so. This was before the nylon went on. So, so he'd made nylon. He'd made that big, big, massive discovery that would have won him a Nobel Prize. Mm. Um, but sadly, um, it wasn't to be. And even more sadly, um, when he took his own life, it was about three or four months before the birth of his only child. So, really, really sad story. That is a bummer. I that know, is a bummer. I know. But um, he was an incredible. Absolutely incredible scientist, and um, oh, such a sad story. Michael Jordan science. Well, so, sorry, everybody. But yeah. Well, thank you, Mr. Carruthers, and yeah. thank you, science, and thank you, Alan. Appreciate and thank, you. And thank you, Motet. Thank you, Motet. <laughs> well, I didn't know that before. Dear science, thanks to Motet, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow.